Hi, this is Stephanie Watson. Welcome to another Throwbacks episode of Gen X Replays After the Show podcast. In Throwbacks, my friend Frankie Hagen and I chat about a topic from film, TV, toys, and trends that heavily influenced us as Gen Xers. And while we center on that topic, we let the conversation flow to our broader Gen X experiences. We hope you enjoy this week's episode, where we talk about record stores, mixtapes, and MTV, how we consumed music in our coming of age. Also, if you hear a few bird tweets in the background, you're not going crazy. That's my cockatiel, Monty, trying to get in on the podcast. Frankie, tell us what your inspiration was for this topic of basically how we consumed music as Gen Xers. Yeah, I have specific memories that make me qualify this for us. Because I think you and I would both agree that when you're young, there's the music experience that you're introduced to, that people are purchasing things for you and it's all kid-related type stuff in the beginning. You know, it's like, it's like mm-hmm. you and I come from a generation where our first experiences like that would maybe be somebody buying a Sesame Street LP or a holiday-related LP for us, or something mm-hmm. else in that age bracket where we would have a record and a record player, you know, maybe, mm-hmm. and that would be what we would play, and maybe like some sort of kids 45 that goes along with it. Like, you know, I specifically can remember holiday albums and, and things like the Urban Chipmunk album when it came out mm-hmm. and Sesame Street and things like that. But that is all still what I would think of as kids stuff. Would you not agree? Mm-hmm. So to me, what I'm going to qualify this, like if I'm going to create a rule in the beginning of what I'm talking about here, (laughs) was the first contemporary type of pop thing that you either purchased for yourself first Mm -hmm. or someone purchased for you and the context in the beginning. I think that's an easy (laughs) way to talk about it. But here's my example. Here's what I'm getting into. So I was in Little League Baseball in Cary, North Carolina. And I played for one of those leagues where we pitched. It wasn't the coaches. And all of the the teams were named after local businesses in Cary, North Carolina. And I played for Cooper's Furniture. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So, and... It's an institution. An institution, (laughs) yeah. And I... uh, I have to say, I was not a great athlete, you know. I was an artistic, geeky kid. I I was fond of baseball, and it was one of those things that made it an easy sport when uh, my parents were going to allow me to do something participatory like that. And I wasn't really great at fielding, you know. I uh, I ended up in right field a lot of times in terms of uh, playing, but I was a lefty. Early on in the season, once the teams had gotten picked, and one of our first big games, I went up to plate and hit a triple where I brought in multiple runners and I got around the plate. And it was a big deal because it was unexpected, I'm sure, that I was mm-hmm. going to perform or I was going to put out. You know? yeah. And the reward, I went to the mall afterwards with my dad. And I bought my first contemporary 45 record. All right. On 45. Record, 
on 45 when they used to have like the and I want to say I'm trying to remember the business I want to say it was a Camelot music uh probably that was a big chain in this area yeah and I don't remember if they exist anymore now or not are they gone Mm -hmm. I think they're gone I I really don't know yeah but it was Camelot music and it was back in the day when they would have a rack of 45s like up a wall you know where you would get to see Mm -hmm. whatever the current were out and I picked Sweet Dreams by the Eurythmics. Oh, good choice. So that was, my, and I hadn't even seen the music video yet, you know, with all the cows and, uh-huh. and Annie Lynn with the short cropped red haircut and the intense eye makeup or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But that was my introduction to, uh, to purchasing what we would consider more adult music or, or something that was of our generation that our parents certainly wouldn't have picked for us. Right. Uh, at that point. <laughs> well, I, we had, so I kind of had like, I guess two entry points. One was the, you know, the music that my parents had. And then one was the music I chose uh, when I finally chose it. And so for my parents, it was, they had a Marantz with a turntable. You didn't even have to say stereo back then. You just had to say you had a Marantz and people knew what you were talking about. Uh, and that's the thing people don't get is that the stereo system for the generation before us was a piece of furniture. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. No. Yeah. And the, so they had a, a turntable on that. Of course, my grandparents also had a turntable and that's where I listened to most of the kids records was at my grandparents house uh but my parents had um Elvis Jim Croce Isaac Hayes the Mamas and the Papas Johnny Cash all sorts of uh albums that they had accumulated they didn't have a huge collection but my parents were huge Elvis fans. They had actually been to two Elvis concerts. I was in utero in one of them, apparently. Uh, so, <laughs> so I can actually say I've been to an Elvis concert, though I have no memory of that. <laughs> but that was, you know, my first exposure to what would be considered popular music, even though it was a little older by the time I was listening to it. Uh, it wasn't a huge record collection, but it was something, you know. And and then by the time it was me, you know, making a decision, um, our turntable had broken, so I couldn't use the turntable anymore. But my parents had gotten a cassette tape player uh, for me, um, so we called it a jam box because that's what you called it back then. And it was the big box of the two big speakers and the cassette deck in yeah. the middle of it. <laughs> So I like got a, a yeah, I was probably about 10, when, 10 or 11 when I got that. Uh, and I had that for many, many years. And then my, my mom was like, well, we can get, start getting you some cassettes. And of course, her gift cassette to me was Lionel Richie's Can't Slow Down. So that was what my mom got for me. Uh, I, no complaints. This is a good album. This is not the one I would have chose, <laughs> but my earliest memory of actually buying an album was Tears for Fears, Songs from the Big Chair, whole album, uh, really, really good album. 
and uh, I uh, played that one to death. And then from there, you know, once I had a cassette player of my own, uh, I was just buying uh, when I could. I couldn't even tell you the order of things uh, that I bought, but I still have them all, every one of them in a box. That's <laughs> impressive. I think a lot of my stuff has gone the way of yard sales or, or eBay. When, it, you know, when I've converted some things to digital, unless it was super precious to me, I went through a minimalist phase where I started eliminating a lot of that kind of stuff. Your parents sound really hip in terms of musical choices. I, uh, you know, my my family was a fairly uh, conservative, religious family uh, in the southeastern United States, yeah. and my dad had one of those, you know, nineteen sixty style like home record systems that was like a long paneled yes. piece of wood. But they were like beautiful, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. these like big area things that people would have in their living room. Yeah. And he, well into like my high school years and beyond, he would listen to records on it and lay on his back in the carpet in the living room. And that would be his time. And mm -hmm. it was largely like his, he had a huge collection of like Southern gospel music from like the fifties mm -hmm. and sixties. So that was really his, his, uh, his thing. And there was very little, you know, if anything, where I would call him, where he would admit that he liked contemporary <laughs> pop song or something like that at the time, but it was it was few and far between. That was what he liked. You know, he liked Grand Old Opry type stuff. He liked he yeah. type stuff. You know, I, that my parents loved Grand Old Opry. One of the collections, the record collections they had, was a Grand Old Opry compilation. Yeah, yeah. And like my mom grew up you know, in Georgia. So she was a fan of a lot of the older, you know, country artists from that time, you know, like Williams Sr. and, and those kind of things that are very much a part of that type of upbringing, you know, mm -hmm. but the same sort of thing. So my exploration into pop and rock music and eventually rap and modern countries and other genres that I had as a DJ was mm -hmm. largely informed by my pop culture and not by my family mm, at that point yeah. in, my, in my peer group, you know? So, cause I, I had friends who were a lot cooler uh, about that kind of stuff than I was. You yeah. know, earlier on, I was, I was still fairly naive just because it wasn't something that I was getting exposed to at the house. Cause I can remember one of my uh, childhood friends who, you know, he had, He'd been playing Evil Knievel on his uh, dirt bike and he had busted his face all up and had had to have like uh, surgery and things like that. And Ouch. You were, doing, you were doing a thing where you were going over and visiting, you know, while your parents were having dinner. And I remember being in his room and he had like, you know, the police's synchronicity and mm. stuff like that. It had nice. been out of that time and I'm looking going, what is this? This is nothing I've ever listened to. And, you know, mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. because I was still, you know, probably listening to a lot of my, I probably, I was probably one of those people who listened to my kids' records longer, mm. <laughs> you know, and then my, had that. Yeah, I was gonna say my that, best friend was a big Duran Duran fan, and she had like all the 45s and all the LPs, and it was great. Like, I can remember those first 45s, like my, my brother mm. has that, that thing where he can say he owned 
a song and an album in all the formats that you can own it. Because I remember his first 45 was Take On Me by AHA. Oh, nice. And he eventually bought the LP album. Mm -hmm. And then when it came out on cassette, he had it on cassette. And then when it came out on CD, eventually he would have it on CD. So I asked him one time, I said, you download it digitally, digital, digitally, so you can have the full spectrum of having that together, right? So, so yeah. yeah, but the first cassette I bought was back when you could stop at a gas station and they would have those turnstiles of oh, cassettes, yeah. for, you know, a couple of bucks, you know, whatever that were designed for a traveler you know, who needed something else to listen to other than the car radio. Mm -hmm. And eventually I would buy all of the, uh, the tapes that one must buy in that particular format. You know, mm -hmm. all the great stuff, like the Eagles' greatest hits or, you know, Steve Miller Band. Or of course. Mothers, if you're in the South, you know, that the people <laughs> saw everywhere. But at that point in time, the first one I bought was this album called Breakdance Hits. Oh, nice. But, so here's the thing. It wasn't even the original artist doing the songs. It was one of those albums where it's like cover artists doing the songs. Oh! So it doesn't sound quite right when you're right. listening to it. And you're just like, what is this thing? Yeah. You know? And I had that. You know, it was a while before I got like the first boombox experience, like what you're talking about. Like, I remember mm. my dad had a larger one in a closet that I would use occasionally and I would take down, but it was one of those things where it was like, I have sons and they're going to be too destructive. So they need to be careful with this. Mm. And you know, like, and, like the first kind of like tape recorder type of deal you play with. But I remember getting the first boombox and thinking, now I can be like a guy in a rap video and I can carry my boombox <laughs> on my shoulder like a break dancer. Uh -huh. Walk around. And if there is nothing whiter that you can imagine <laughs> than a little white kid living in the suburbs in Cary, <laughs> thing was so cool and hip for like hip hop or rap music, carrying his little boombox on his shoulder. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, uh, that's the image that you can just kind of place right there. Just speaking of this kind of things, you know, I think our generation, at some point in time, what we consume then gets influenced heavily by the early part of MTV. Yes, I was even going to say one of the earliest cassettes I had was MTV's, uh, it was called MTV To Go. It was a little album that they released in 84, 85. It had rats round and round on it. Uh, that's the one I played more often than anything on there. You know, yeah. as a DJ, that's one of those songs we consider a stripper song. Oh. You know? <laughs> it's like there's certain types of songs where if somebody requests it for a special event, you like stare at them like, did you used to be a stripper? You know, we... We, we, we think that in our minds when we hear it. Like, maybe they just liked hard rock. Hard rock. Maybe they just liked hair metal. Who knows? But mm -hmm. it, it's just funny. That immediately pops in my head. Yeah. It's, <laughs> with me, like I said, I was naive little, little white boy with 
like, and I had like one of those, like almost like Beatles mop top kind of haircuts that little boys mm -hmm. have for a long time before they start. Mm -hmm. So I was that totally naive kid, you know, growing up. And I remember my uh, cousin Jay Williams came over and it was a bunch of the boys playing and we had cable at that point in time. And I remember him going, oh, we should watch MTV. No idea what it was, <laughs> you know? And I can remember the first music video I saw was Harold Faltemeyer's Axel F for the Beverly Hills Cop movie. Oh, yes. Such a good video, too. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and at that point in time, any chance me and my brother had that from then on to, like, watch something, you know, we were like, ooh, well, we'll just watch MTV if mm -hmm. we have nothing else to do. I can remember like lazy Saturday afternoons watching the 1970s Doctor Who stuff that would be on PBS and mm. flipping back and forth between that and seeing what video was on MTV. Just <laughs> yeah. the, when they yeah. played the videos in full. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The whole thing. And, and they had, had the before, VJs. Yeah. Martha Quinn, you know, uh -huh. and Hunter, Adam Hunter. And, you know, before, before you, before they got a little more exotic and you had guys who were, you know, because before the 80s were over, you had guys who were hard rock guys and who were metal guys who kind of mm -hmm. fleshed it out a little bit more in the early days of rap and all that. Yeah, yeah. for sure. I, you know, because I know some of my other record purchases that were 45s, it mm -hmm. almost became like buying a comic book for somebody where, you know, I'd have a few bucks and I was constantly seeing the Duran Duran of You To A Kill video. Mm -hmm. you know, or, or, uh, of course, Walk This Way with Run DMC and Harris, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of those things, if they, if they got into your head, the visuals, then that probably had a lot to do with you, you, uh, making a move for that music after the fact. You know? mm -hmm. so, so, I remember, it's funny. Yeah, I was gonna say, I remember that 45s were the first way we had singles, essentially. Yeah. Um, because cassette singles did eventually hit the market, but for a long time, if you were gonna get a cassette, you were getting the entire album. Yeah, it was an investment for that entire album, for sure. Mm -hmm. I, I remember when cassette singles first came out, you know, like right there next to the 45s. I think the first cassette single I actually bought was uh, Red Red Wine by UB40. Oh, good choice. Mine. <laughs> I remember Mine was um, uh, Wild Wild West. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Who was yeah, the artist? Yeah. Who was the artist? I can't remember. Oh. Like, I, have my, uh, I have my music library right in front of me, so I can actually vet you on this. Yeah, that is, uh, where is it? Oh, The Escape Club. Yeah. Escape Club. That's the one. That was my first single that I got. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That, that's so funny. <laughs> that music was so much more connected to uh, that type of format, mm -hmm. you know, and the older end of Gen Xers, their experience, I think, is slightly different mm -hmm. in that they were still listening to a lot of the, uh, the LPs that had come from back into the generation just before them. So you would mm -hmm. have a lot of them who were getting into like uh, arena rock and prog rock from the late 70s and early 80s. Right. Which 
you and I might have heard, but we're at that point in Gen X where that had kind of happened already. Yeah. So if your parents didn't have those albums, you weren't exposed to, to it until like when we heard Genesis, we thought of like these happy fun things with Phil Collins and stuff like that. We didn't know there had been this other ridiculously art, you know, Genesis before that, at that point in time, you know, mm -hmm. I remember my older cousin, you know, these were the guys who would have that stereo system with their uh, turntable in their bedroom that they yeah. lovingly took care of. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, where you'd have the guy who had his two speakers and his turntable set up. And later on, they would still, those would still exist and you would have your tape decks and maybe even a CD tray and everything built into them. But those mm -hmm. original ones that somebody, and they would have their headphones. And this is an experience that uh, Gen Zers and late end millennials don't really understand, which is what I, would call the real stereo experience, mm -hmm. which is that when something's recorded on vinyl mm -hmm. or eight track or, or whatever, you know, like I haven't even talked about eight track because I have memories of people <laughs> listening to eight track. Yeah. And then my grandparents had one of those. But uh, like you had these guys who would smoke a lot of pot and listen to the Doors LP or, you know, or, or uh, Rush or somebody else like that that was a heavy influence for like an early in Gen Xer. And they'd be listening through their headphones. And the whole idea of real stereo, it's hard to explain to somebody. Because now when you download something digitally, it's remastered. You know, it's right. fully remastered. You can listen to it through an iPod where like it's all balanced. But mm -hmm. when something was in real stereo, like I remember like listening to uh, Born on the Bio by CCR mm -hmm. and one of my, uh, my uncle's vans when I was a kid because he was a big CCR fan. And John Fogarty, because it was recorded in real stereo, would sound like a little man running between all the speakers in the car during the song. <laughs> yes. He was moving between different microphones. So you were getting this weird effect of something's in front of you, now it's to your left ear, now it's behind you. And when you remaster stuff in digital format, all that disappears, it's gone. You know, so you would have these guys who would listen to these like transcendent albums like Doors albums and, you know, like I said, Pink Floyd, The Wall and that kind of stuff. And they would have this real stereo experience of stuff happening all around them in a set of headphones. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it so felt like you were standing in the room and the guitarist is to your left and the singer is to your right. And yeah. yeah. And yeah and we're, we're kind of what i would think of we're on like the middle end of being a gen xer so it would mm -hmm. be like if you had an older friend or an older cousin they would have mm -hmm. that type of sound experience and a lot of times they would put the headphones on you and you would be like whoa what am i listening to and it sounds <laughs> like somebody's coming behind me and now this mm -hmm. and it's like such a foreign thing to think about now because people will ask me all the time and i'll say like well you know when you listen to an m3 it doesn't necessarily mean the sound quality is better than what you listen to on vinyl. In fact, the vinyl quality might actually be better in a <laughs> lot of cases in terms of what you're getting. It's just, yeah. uh, you know, we've, we've maybe crisped it up or things like that, but we have to compress those files so we can mm -hmm. store everything. So it's, it's, a very, it's a very different experience. Yeah, and records and uh, magnetic tape you know, represented that analog experience with music and uh, being able to capture a performance kind of as it was 
uh, you would have the master tape. When someone was recording, they would record to a reel-to-reel, and it's the reel-to-reel that would then be uh, edited to produce, you know, the record or the um, magnetic tape that you would consume in eight-track or cassette form. And so I remember with the rise of CDs, people talking about the fact that, oh, yeah, you get this great digital quality, uh, which is very, you know, high quality, but you lose the richness of the uh, analog experience. And then there was the other era of going from CDs to MP3s, um, which was kind of, I would not say going from one to the other, but people talking about, oh, MP3s are so compressed, you don't get the true performance. And so there's, I think every generation has their concerns about losing quality going from one media to another. Or the experience of buying an entire album because you wanted to buy that album. Now it's like mm. you can just consume individual songs off of an album and never care about anything else that was recorded for, you know, to fill that space. Mm-hmm. Whereas, uh, you know, that was the thing. Like if you were really into an artist and then a lot of times because, you know, you didn't have the cash to, just go purchase music willy-nilly. Right, you, right. You learned every song on that album, front yes. and back. Oh, yeah. You know? I could sing the entire songs from the big chair. I could also sing all of um, U2's Joshua Tree, probably. <laughs> How many times did I listen to that? And, of course, the Thriller album from Michael Jackson. Oh, which wow, yeah. The LP for that was so beautiful. I had a friend of mine who had it on LP, and there was a gorgeous photo of uh michael jackson on the inside and uh i just had it in cassette and i was jealous i'm like mine's so tiny (laughs) the lp experience is uh, a beautiful kind of art experience in itself for people Mm -hmm. who love them and i can understand why in the last couple of years lp sales have now outsold cds you know Mm -hmm. and it has a lot to do with the people who there's this whole there's this whole like gen z late millennial movement now buying these like little hip little turntables and mm-hmm. collecting these reprints of uh, different vinyl artists or certain new artists who will release things to vinyl. I mean, and then you have the beauty of the album art and you have all these things in this kind of uh, format that un- unfortunately takes up a lot of space, but if it's what you, what you like, you know, and it's, you know, it's, it's got something beautiful about it because it's like, if you had an album art, autographed by your artist you know it was very beautiful that way I mean, yeah. I'm you could you frame it and nerdy. put it on the wall yeah oh yeah it's gorgeous I uh you know as a DJ I've had a lot of stuff I've converted from CD to digital files and if I ever had someone who signed an interior of a CD for me I went to the trouble of getting a picture of that cover with my autograph on it and then scanning it in and putting it into the MP3 file in my DJ library. So I would have that autograph as part of my digital collection. That's wonderful. Yeah. How nerdy is that? <laughs> <laughs> I'd do it. I would do it. Just, uh, well, I mean, just e- even, that- you know, and I'm thinking about the term DJ, you know, it came from, disc jockey you know the 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 spinning of records and then it kind of diverged and you got this concept of a dj being someone who 
was running turntables live and spinning and scratching and creating music out of uh, bits of sound from those turntables. So it, it's interesting how that term evolved from the, the evolution of the use of turntables, especially through the 80s. Yeah, I mean, those guys are real DJs too. Mm. I mean, doing that between vinyl, just just the, the art of it and not ruining your records, mm -hmm. I can't imagine, you know? Yeah. I went and saw DJ Cool a few years ago and he actually has a guy on payroll who wears white gloves and hands him records. And mm. I wonder how that looks when you file your taxes. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean, it's that thing. And, you know, you have that when you're younger and then our age bracket, we were suffused more with uh, cassette tapes initially you know i think a lot of us got more cassette tapes because of that that scam where you put a penny on a sheet and you get to order however many albums it is <laughs> i did that columbia house records columbia. oh yeah that's how you build up that <laughs> early cassette uh, uh collection so i think our generation is famous for a lot of us suddenly getting a whole lot of music mm -hmm. or, or doing what we're going to do to get that going on and our, our collections expand exponentially that way mm -hmm. yeah and then of course you know you get your first walkman yeah at that point and i remember you know when i was exercising more in high school because i wanted to impress some girl or whatever and there was uh and there was a track in my neighborhood where they had removed old train tracks where you would like walk between the neighborhoods and that was yeah. kind of like a nice walking path and i would put my walk, get my Walkman, and I would have the cassette that was gonna be the first cassette I was gonna play while I was on my walk. Then mm -hmm. I would have a second cassette that I would put in the pocket of my gym shorts in case the first cassette ran out and I wanted to play something else with yes. some more songs while I was on my walk. And, you know, and if you had gone back and told me at that age, like, hey, you know that Walkman you've got? You're gonna have something smaller than that that you can have every song you've ever thought of on at the same time. <laughs> Just blowing the oh, mind. Oh, and you can make phone calls with it. Oh, and you can do Star Trek type stuff with it. You know, <laughs> like, you, know, you would have blown my freaking mind. Mm -hmm. You know, because I was like, yeah, I got my Walkman. I'm going to listen to 16 songs between this one tape that I'm playing. And then I'll flip in my other tape that's maybe got another 16 songs or so on it. And then I'll be done with my... <laughs> you, you don't know? have to worry about it eating the tape and having to roll it back. And yeah. I love the fact that our generation has a set of memes that identifies the pencil and the cassette as being two associated objects. <laughs> Oh my gosh, yeah. I gotta fix those. Uh, my, so I got I, my thriller album got eaten and um, I actually broke the tape and I was very sad. And I never did buy another copy of it, not until I was older and got it on, uh, on digital. What was your favorite song on the album? On the thriller album? Oh God. Um, you can even say, because that's a tough call. Probably beat it. I mean, I yeah. loved Beat It, and I, th I thought it, the video was one that I just really enjoyed as well. Uh, the, uh, you know, the mock, the dancing fight, essentially, <laughs> that was yeah, in that video. Always so creative. And for some of our younger, more political audience members, yes, asterisks, scandal noted, 
But at the time, he got the most amazing stuff our generation had ever seen. So, yeah, you know, absolutely. we have to yeah. acknowledge that. That's not, that's not ever going to change or go away. You know? Yeah, he was an incredible wow. artist, but he also had, he was surrounded by a team of incredible people who helped him produce amazing content too. Oh, I, I think the fact that he had had success early in life gave him that leverage to be able to call on those creative forces to, to keep producing even bigger stuff. Like it seemed like every album was a little bit bigger than the other. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And whenever the music video came out, it was like a major event that made local news or yeah. national yeah. news because everybody was like, okay, well, we got to see the new thing that he's produced. But, I mean, you know, he was like the modern video music person like um like would create a story across multiple pieces of music and the video would be like yeah. half an hour long and and go across all those pieces of music he was born for that medium when yeah. that medium existed he was born nowadays it's like you have people who maybe they started off as youtube stars or acts or they were vine stars and they they catapulted themselves you know into mm -hmm. in front of a different group it's like the rules constantly change every couple of years mm -hmm. in terms of uh, how people perceive or or digest their media mm -hmm. and we were talking about record stores i mean the that is how we got like if it wasn't a record store and it wasn't mtv then it was radio uh FM radio was on the rise at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, in spite of the rise of cassettes and cars, the FM radio was still big. And you got your boot uh, and you could record the songs off of the radio. Exactly, yeah. record it off the radio. So um, that's how we consumed. We couldn't just go to the internet and order our favorite song. And if you were like me, I was in a small town and the nearest record store was in an adjoining town like a 15 minute drive away and it's not somewhere my parents would just hop in the car and go uh so i would have to wait until mom's going to go to the mall for something <laughs> to buy whatever i want and in the meantime had to tape it off the radio uh, i i got um rock me amadeus uh on uh, recorded off the radio and i replayed that song over and over again the DJA even joked uh, when he did it. He's like, I know you're all going to record this, so I'm going to give you two seconds before I start the song. Ready? Go. <laughs> he did. And I was, I was like, he knows us. This guy knows us. That's so great. That was the thing. It was like, oh, the DJ better not talk over this song. <laughs> right? You know, so, I can get the, so I can get the full version of it. Though it was interesting. At one point in time, it got even more meta because there were some songs that invited the DJ almost to talk over it. Yeah. Whereas, if you remember, we built this city on rock and roll and Starship had their comeback in the 80s. There's mm. like a British music video where a local DJ is talking. Yes. You know? And what a lot of local stations would do is they would play the song and then at the same point in the music video, they would then just do a local station identification in the right. middle of the song. So it kind of matched up with what was going on at that point in time. I and, remember uh, that. Yeah, and you'd have that as, as part of how that worked out. So, 
So yeah, yeah, it's that, man, was that ever a thing? I recorded <laughs> so many songs on cassette tapes off of local radio. And it's very telling, you know, into how I evolved as an adult because me and my friends in the neighborhood I grew up in would play radio station where we were the DJs and then we would announce the different songs that we were going to play. Oh, that's cool. And we would have all our little cassette tapes made up of our little fake radio station. And then we would play them sometimes while we were outside, you know, doing whatever, playing basketball, some board game or, or what have you at that point in time. That was, that was, uh, you know, pre, pre podcast, pre, you know, <laughs> yeah. where people get some sort of creative outlet, but you know, that was, that was a thing. You know, that my was connection. A- yeah, I, I remember having like a dual cassette tape thing. So you would be ready to queue, you know, you'd be queued up with the second cassette when <laughs> the first one. Yeah, was yeah. On. Yeah. <laughs> so did you ever make a mixtape for anybody? Yeah. So later on, I, uh, you know, that first jam box I had only had one cassette. Uh, but later on, I did have a dual cassette and made some mixtapes. Uh, I can't say I made them for anybody. I have no recollection of actually making one for someone else, but I do remember someone else making one for me um, at one point. Yeah. Uh, But I remember, you know, I had as many (laughs) Maxell blank cassettes uh, as I did, you know, albums that I had bought at the record store because I was constantly creating my own mixes. So oh. I was kind of like, uh, you know, like I'll, I'll take these songs from this album and then this song from this album. I would literally go through that process of creating just an album that associated with a mood. And it's funny yeah. uh, that you look at my Pandora now uh my pandora account is the same way i have um channels my pandora channels are associated with moods (laughs) i would do that and you know the effort and the labor for doing it was so much more then than it is now because you know doing professional dj work i put together people's dinner lists and things for them all the time and i'll Mm -hmm. i'll flow it out mood wise but Moving around MP3s is not that difficult. It's just the selection of the, the content, maybe. It still has some work. But you're doing it with a cassette, and it, it almost feels more labor-intensive. I mean, it's not like you have a forge, and there's a smelter, and there's sparks flying, and you're making a weapon or anything. <laughs> but for like a little kid, that was like uh-huh. as close as you could maybe get at that point in time with what we were doing with our technology to to make it, or when we were overly angsty in high school, you know, mm. in terms of putting stuff together at that point in time. But I uh, I can remember breaking up with somebody and then, and then making the song request on one of those shows like, oh God, I'm dating myself, Delilah. Yes, she's still around even. I, re- I can remember the song I requested. I could remember weeping into the phone. Oh, it was Aww. terrible. My little, my little angsty heart at that point in time. Yeah. For we those of you wondering, it. Wish It Would Rain Down by Phil Collins. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah. 
Oh, I was okay. big into some careless whisper for a while. Like, I oh, yeah, that's Wham. George Michael did the whole horn solo. He wrote that for that song. He's uh, very talented. That's that kind of shows his range beyond like being a proto boy band type of thing mm -hmm. for him as an artist. That was yeah. that was uh, amazing stuff. But hey, for those of you listening who do not share our generation, the thing about a cassette tape, you could not the end of the actual tape was on, but you flip it over to the, the top end of the tape. And there are these, if it's a professionally produced tape that you're not supposed to record over, there are these like two whole things that are there to prevent you from being able to record over that tape. And if uh, you had one that was that for you to record over it, there were these little tabs that you could mm -hmm. You know, while the tab was in there, you could record over and over and over again. But as soon as you popped the tab out, it's it was permanent. now made, it was permanent. permanent. Unless you taped over it. If you like got like masking tape <laughs> yep. over it, you could potentially ruin somebody's album. You know, right. Uh, right. depending on how that would work. Or and, a spitball. I did the, the spitball thing. You stick the spitball in it. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, just a little piece of paper. Now I didn't actually spit it. I just rolled it really tiny, put it in there. But I did My that a few times. My brother had this uh, tape recorder that was from a different country that my dad mm. had gotten at this uh, electronics wholesale place for him. Okay. And for some reason, it did not obey the rules of those two. So mm. if you had a real album in there and you accidentally hit the record button, you would mess up that real album. Oh. And my brother. Well, well I was gonna was say, it's actually a little difficult to do it on most decks because um, for a while, all the, the buttons were mechanical. So it took more uh, physical effort to push down the record because you would press record and play at the same time. You're absolutely right. Yep. Yeah. So this one was one of those ones that was too easy to do it on. Is what uh, I, and my brother at the time was a fan of Def Leppard when they went way more poppy than Hysteria came out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and uh, that had the song on it, Love Bites. Mm, if you remember. So good. So good. So we were with a group of friends and one of the girls grabbed his tape recorder in the middle of Love Bites and accidentally hit the record button. And for oh, the no. longest time, we still may have it to this day. Like for me and my brother, the way Love Bites goes is when you make love and then all of a sudden there's a pause and you hear a little high pitched my little brother go, stop, what are you doing? And then it goes right back to, do you look in the mirror? Oh, that's so good. <laughs> I'll have to ask him if he still got it because <laughs> that's good. That always made my day. And as we got older, it got funnier and funnier whenever one of us would want to listen to it. You know, it's, yeah. it's one of those things. My brother and I, um, when we were much younger, I, like 10 and earlier, um, when we would stay with my grandparents, they had a cassette recorder, but it was kind of like I, I don't even know how to describe it it was a box essentially I mean all it was is a recorder and player it wasn't 
fancy in terms of the sound quality. The purpose was really just to kind of record and play back something like um, built-in microphone and everything. So it would be like for recording your voice and then playing it back later, um, uh, like to take a memo or something. But it also had different speeds. So you could set the speed at which it was either recording or playing back. So what we did as kids was play with recording ourselves uh, at low speeds and then playing it back at normal speed and we sounded like chipmunks. Oh yeah. <laughs> and we would just laugh so hard, it was great. That's so I still good. have them, I still have those somewhere and I keep saying that before the magnetic tape, you know, while it's still magnet magnetized and I haven't lost that data, I need to do some conversions because that's the thing with magnetic tape is it's so easy to lose that data over time. I had two Chipmunks albums on LP. Nice. As I had Poo. Winnie the Pooh? <laughs> I had Pooh, yes. <laughs> Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh. Yes. Yes, I had Winnie the Pooh. During COVID-19, there are people who are potentially getting arrested for dressing like Winnie the Pooh when oh. they go to their mailbox. You know, Put your like, pants few, on, people. There's a few police officers who had to post that in certain communities. Like, you must go to the mailbox wearing pants. Sorry. Please wear pants. Please wear pants. <laughs> For public oh, protection. Uh, unless it's a long gown, in, in which case you're fine. Just cover the butt. <laughs> <laughs> cover, cover your underwear. <laughs> And you were talking about conservative, uh, having a conservative family. Mine was, my father was more on the conservative side. Mom was conservative to moderate, um, I would say. And I, I think a lot of the albums that I listened to might have been hers originally. Uh, but, but what I was uh, talking about is the um, local radio stations were forced to edit content to make it radio friendly for you know the local market yeah. you know we could see just about anything on mtv but you know we had big chunks of songs cut out of our music uh sometimes on the radio any yeah. memories of particular songs that frustrated you from the editing i know i had a few uh i can't think of one specifically <laughs> Which which one? All the stuff I can think of like that is more modern stuff that are more annoyances for DJs. Uh yeah. Well, I I remember Beastie Boys being a big thing that got edited. Um, oh yeah, Beastie Boys uh, very much got edited. Yeah. A lot of times they would take certain um, verses out of a song because of the topic. Um, I remember being in middle school when License to Ill came out. And mm -hmm. That was an album that a lot of people's parents wouldn't buy for them. Mm -hmm. So I remember a lot of boys would make copies of the album for their friends. And then like, I even did the thing where I got a copy of the album cover itself mm -hmm. and like cut out the fake cover for my cassette tape. Yes. <laughs> I did that yes. so I my copy of license. I did that. Uh, I did that for a Queensryche album. Yeah. That I copied from someone. That was a thing back then. But you know, my greatest specific cassette tape memory mm -hmm. was 
a road trip from Charleston to to Georgia, right? You know, I, 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 I was out of high school. I guess it was maybe a year or two into college. Mm-hmm. And I had Tom Petty's Full Moon Fever. Nice. Great album. Great album. And I was driving my car. It was an 84 Mercury. Mm-hmm. It was like a granny car that me and my brother had put like some, some cool wheels on, things like that, that we drove. But it was an older car. And my friend Chuck and I were driving to Georgia. And my Tom Petty Full Moon Fever album got stuck in the cassette tape. Oh, no, no. And so the whole way to Georgia and the whole way back, our only choice was radio or Tom Petty's Full Moon Fever. (laughs) So the two of us, by the time we got halfway back on the trip, had memorized Full Moon Fever. Like, Uh like all the pauses he took between certain songs and, you know, all the... (laughs) all the stuff that happened with it. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's such a great album. I mean, if, if you're gonna get stuck with an album, I've told that story to people since then, like other DJs and people, music inclined, and they'll always pause and say, well, if it had to happen, that's not a bad album to have that happen. <laughs> you know? Very true. Oh yeah. my goodness, yeah. There. Well, I have a memory of going to uh, a church camp that was up in the mountains. I would go once a summer and be there for a week. And it was a charter bus that we would go and, and meet at one of its stops across the state to go to camp. Uh, and, you know, when I had the cassette player and the headphones and I could sit on the bus and just zone out and listen to the music, um, U2's uh, Joshua Tree was, you know, I go back to that one, but that that was one that got a lot of play of me just sitting in the car traveling (laughs) when I was younger. That spoke to a lot of people. I remember Mm -hmm. when I was listening to music, a friend's mother being very passionate about that album and telling Mm -hmm. me about it. And I was just kind of, okay, cool, whatever. And it wasn't until (laughs) I was a lot older that I had uh, any really specific appreciation you know for them on it so I was the same with REM I would right now consider REM to be my top favorite band of all time (laughs) and I have so many of their albums but I had the green album when it came out but and, and that was 1888 89 but I didn't have any of their other albums I liked the music but it wasn't until I was later into college that the music really spoke to me more. Uh, and it's like I rediscovered the, that REM experience that so many people had experienced in the 80s. Yeah. Like REM was such a college radio thing. Yeah. There was like a girl who I was a little bit older, who was a little bit older than me, who I had a huge thing for. And I remember she was so cool. She was, she was from Atlanta and she listened to R.E.M. and all these bands that I like really wasn't that aware of yet because mm-hmm. it was kind of like edgier, you know, when that kind of alt band was just now starting to happen, you know, yeah. at that point in time from that scene where you had a lot of these neat Southeastern bands that were kind yeah. of like the love children of the B-52s, so to speak. <laughs> That's true. And, uh, all that was kind of happening and I just remember specifically and I hadn't really moved toward it yet and I remember buying 
the REM Orange Crush cassette because Aww. I wanted to impress her. Oh, yeah. Specifically, that was like my first window into it. And I know a lot of people, you know, like uh, have identified a lot of other albums that were meaningful from that group at that particular point in time. Mm-hmm. That was the one. And I, and I liked R.E.M., you know. Mm-hmm. It just, it's funny how you'll take certain albums and you'll take them apart and they'll mm-hmm. become like this tapestry of what you like. Because as I got through my pop phase, that's when I started to roll back and I listened to a like I think Tom Petty was like an introduction to me to a lot of Southern rock style stuff mm-hmm. that had kind of come before. I became a huge Eagles person. Yes, me too, actually. Back yeah. in 89. Yeah. yeah. So I was listening to all this older Eagle stuff mm-hmm. that had rolled back and things that were similar to that at that point in time where I kind of discovered a lot of those kind of bands and artists, you know, so I was mm-hmm. deepening my appreciation for music. Leonard's. Leonard Skinner was another one for me. Um, yeah. I felt like I rediscovered Leonard Skinner. Yeah. I mean, and it was because it was a different sort of thing that you were listening to. That was, It's kind of, I think when you've gone through like a very poppy phase and mm-hmm. you like, then you're like, well, let me see what meteor things go on. <laughs> and you're going to. I was coming off my Def Leppard and my Guns N' Roses. I had to have a change. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, because, yeah, gosh, all the hair bands, too. Oh, point. yeah. It's it's funny because you don't realize that it's like such a snapshot. It's a different time frames. And then it changes. And then within a few years, you've almost forgotten what you were digesting at that point in time and what other mm-hmm. things you're getting into, you know, music-wise. You well, know, you saw a lot of, uh, well, and it's been true throughout the whole uh, pop music uh, history is having you know one person hit it big with one song and one style and then producers going out and looking for almost identical talent yeah and then they, uh, they yeah. almost overdo that sound and then mm-hmm. and then it's whatever the next thing and well you know i don't know if this is your experience i know with me i can mm-hmm. very clearly remember those early record moments or those early cassette moments or mm-hmm. You know, even, you know, those, those kind of album exposures. But when it comes to CD format, mm-hmm. a lot of what I purchased for my early CDs were repeats of things I had had in cassette or other formats. So I was sitting here and I was reaching, trying to think of like, do I have this amazing CD memory of special albums and I don't think I really do. You know, mm-hmm. I, think, I think at that point in time, it was like, well, I really like this, so I should have it in this format that's going to be the only other format that ever exists. I was a freshman in college when I got my first CD player. And it was, a, you know, a standalone unit that then had an audio out that went into my, my stereo, which was just a cassette deck, you know. And... Um, one of the first albums I got was influenced by a roommate of mine in college. And it just happened to be uh, They Might Be Giants, Flood. Talk oh, about a- another album that I have memorized. <laughs> that's a great album. I played it so much because it was one of my first CDs. And then I was also going through a country music phase there for a little bit. And well, that was country a country album. Country, like uh, your, your, your Garth Brooks. 
Clint Black. Clint Black. There was a lot of really great country at that yeah. point in time that was very oh, yeah. like pop country. Like it the, really was. I liked it. That it was across the board. Faith Hill was having her moment, and mm-hmm. all these different people were were really creating. And that also was the time when a lot of people from my generation were listening to a lot of like uh, Hootie and the Blowfish, mm-hmm. or you prefer Counting Crows, or uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of that was happening during what I consider the Friends era, quote unquote. Oh. Uh. <laughs> Okay, yeah, that was 94. So I entered college in 91. So Friends came out while I was in college. And I have these memories of watching that show with a roommate who had already gotten into it. And I so it was, I was well, they were well into the first season before I started watching it. And then I was hooked. I couldn't put it down. Yeah, because I re- I specifically remember those being two of the bands that during that time frame, you know, mm-hmm. people were really, really, really into Mm-hmm. And I was growing up in Charleston at that point in time. Yeah. So Beauty and the Bluefish and Edward McCain were like institutions. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So I saw Edward McCain live. I must have seen him live six times because I was friends with his bass player. Hey, wait a second! I'm friends with his current bass player. Scott Banovich. No. Was who I- his current bass player is uh, Jason Pomar. Okay, I knew Scott Banovich, who was a huge <laughs> Star Wars fanatic. Oh, cool. And uh, he, uh, I used to manage, I managed a comic book shop at that time. And he would come in and I would help him hunt down Star Wars stuff for his uh-huh. huge Star Wars gens. Like nice. when, when, uh, when they were relaunching the original movies at that point in time in theaters and stuff like that. And he, uh, and when, and even I remember when the first Phantom Menace movie came out, I remember I helped mm-hmm. him get this huge Millennium Falcon display that was in one of the local grocery stores, you know, that I helped negotiate him getting that. And he would always show nice. up and go, some tickets, we're going to be at the music farm this weekend. And nice. So, so <laughs> I've seen him live once. Uh, unfortunately, I, you know, he's in the area so much and I, yet I've only seen him one time. It was just so funny. It was just one of those things. Was I a huge Edward McKinney fan? <laughs> yeah. But it was one of those things where it was like... He's a great performer. Oh, it was a great performer. Yeah. And because of that, I knew both of those albums extremely yeah. well. Mm-hmm. But it was more to the point that I knew Scott. And then this girl I knew who was a buddy of mine, Kane Cameron, who was a radio DJ at the time. Mm-hmm. Like, she was just like in rapture with the band. And so I would... Mm-hmm. I would go and be her her wingman. Her <laughs> to to go. That's that, awesome. I would be her buddy. Go see these shows at the same time too. So it was just, yeah, man, that's crazy. I think that is the weirdest connection I've ever had with someone that yeah, you and both, I have both known a bass player for right. Edwin McCain. <laughs> that's great. Anyway, so that was a tangent. <laughs> There's our tangent. Sorry, we just discovered we had a weird connection. That was a weird connection. I love it. Uh, there was one thing I forgot to mention, though. Um, the forms that we consumed music, you know, I, I listed the radio and the tapes and going to the record stores uh, and MTV. But you mentioned, you know, the mail order and Columbia House. And there, there was another company that was big as well. I can't think of the name of it. 
but the mail order was still a common way to get music and they would advertise on tv like compilation albums call toll free <laughs> you know, available on vinyl eight track and cassette <laughs> this is a, a recurring theme i think with gen xers that mm -hmm. i think is something that I longingly wish I could share with my millennial or my Gen Z friends on the mm -hmm. same level. Mm -hmm. There is an Indiana Jones-esque quality to Gen Xers about their hobbies in that <laughs> we would go digging for the things we wanted to find. Yep. Whether that is a corner record store that a Rastafarian or some aged uh, 60s burnout or some like hipster who's seen uh, high fidelity too many times, mm -hmm. uh, you know, is running, you know, and you're flipping through vinyl or albums or or old or old, or, or digging in bins for looking for music or yes. like I would spend weekends at the flea market looking for comic books and mm -hmm. you know and there's this like hunt for the treasure, you know that those kind of hobbies presented to us that were ways to while away the time mm -hmm. and associate with special moments or the effort involved in doing something with it. Mm -hmm. You know, like putting together your playlist or how you had to get to music. That, that and the hard to find albums, the one that you yeah. would have to go to like a specialty store like School Kids Records here in Raleigh. Yeah. Uh, to to hunt it down because it was played on some college station and no one had ever heard of it. <laughs> I mean, nowadays you can go to Amazon and then even if Amazon doesn't have it themselves, some vendor who is advertising through Amazon potentially has it. Yeah, or yeah. we're pretty or, lucky in that respect. Or you can set an alert so when it does become available, your your uh, alert service tells you that it's available yes. you know at that mm -hmm. point in time we didn't have anything like that i mean it was no. it was purely you know like talking to people or if you befriended the person who ran the store yes. and they were coming in enough during the course of a week that you would walk in and the clerk would go hey that thing you wanted i got it in the back oh yeah I remember sign-up lists, too, at yeah. record stores. Like, you would be on a literal wait list, like a written-down wait list when something came back in. And they'd give you a call. It's in. Come pick it up. <laughs> There's such a part of that that you miss, you know? Mm. I mean, at the same time, you're thankful that if you really wanted it that bad, you can go get it now as an adult. But Yeah. But oh, there's something to be said for the hunt, you know? <laughs> Yeah. And I, I wouldn't say that I would discount the experience our younger generations have because, you know, they didn't have what we experience, but the technology that they do have available is so amazing yeah. <laughs> that, that I think it's wonderful that someone who is 10 or 12 years old, uh, who's just starting to discover the kinds of music they really like that's just their own music has a way to track that down a way to find that oh yeah i mean i mean i guess it's you know a little hubris you know to talk about you know how we experience the wasteland and and mm -hmm. how 
you have a group now that have been plugged in from the beginning to everything that ever was or ever will be <laughs> available at the at your fingertips or yeah. every novel every tv show every song that you like you can now carry around with you in your pocket yeah you know that 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 is a thing you know where to me i was telling somebody the other day i said you know me as a bit of a collector i've always thought no you want a house you want this place to live to create all your stuff and put it all there but now i suppose for a lot of people who all those things they could just take along with them with the exception of their clothing or, or food or anything just traveling around in like some beautiful uh silver airstream sounds more attractive <laughs> at that point in time because you can obviously take all those things with you now you don't even have to have an album collection in a physical sense anymore no. um you don't even have to buy it on itunes now i do buy things for my itunes um still you know bands that i want to support or if it's yeah. an entire album that i want to own so that i can listen through it uh but now you have subscription services streaming services you know so you have an on-demand accessibility as long as you have an internet connection <laughs> maybe to bring it back full circle so mm -hmm. there are things that normally would not exist in modern formats because their circulation was so specific or so low that's true as a north carolina uh native now but more specifically as a person who grew up in North Carolina in those early years. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things you may remember, and I, I think I talked about it in a the previous podcast, was I clearly remember the year that Jim Valvano and NC State won the pennant. 1983, yeah. North Carolina. And why it's a big deal for those of us who are from North Carolina is NC State is kind of like the working class college. So <laughs> it, it's like when Duke wins, Duke's got all the money. So, I mean, it's not that impressive that Duke won, right? Because they can afford all the good players and all the good stuff, yeah. right? Same with Carolina, yeah. Same with Carolina. But when State does it, that's a big deal because that, big deal. that means the working class kids pulled it off, you know? And that's, <laughs> it means a lot more to a lot of people. And specifically around that time frame, in North Carolina, uh, WRL and one of the local radio stations released a 45 of a bluegrass band doing an NC State basketball song that was associated with their win. It was kind of like a celebratory song. Oh, I don't even know if I knew that. Wow. I bought the 45 as a kid. I had it. And, you know, I thought it was cool. So mm -hmm. uh, a few years ago, I'm DJing a party for uh, one of the local uh, NC State alumni. And three of the players from the uh, Wolfpack team from then were gonna be at the party. Wow. And the client asked me, could you get that song? And I thought to myself, does that exist in a format that I can mm -hmm. get it? You know, because yeah. putting down the 45 is one thing, you know, so, so sure enough, you know, I cataloged, you know, I found somebody online who actually had the 45 who could have sold it to me. But then I turned around and I, I told the guy who was selling it what I needed it for. And he said, well, let me just make you a digital copy of it 
since you're doing it for a client and that's what it's for. And he took the 45, he made a professional digital copy of it, sent it to me, played it, blew their mind that I could find it. Wow. And what's great about it, even when I listen to it and it's part of my library now, is you can hear the little hisses from the record, you know, mm-hmm. in the recording. But, you know, I briefly re-experienced the charm of hunting something down. <laughs> That's wonderful. For that somebody, wonderful. you know, because so many things, you know, if it wasn't important, maybe get swept under the rug. But here we are, we have these great ways where we can preserve things and, mm-hmm. and bring them back, you know, and to the front of our memory. I can't imagine going through and I I just have to bring it up um, even though it's a little bit off topic but I can't imagine how going through what we're going through now with COVID-19 how that would have impacted us in the 80s when we didn't have the internet. <laughs> you know I think about that sometimes too and I was talking to somebody about that in regards to like 9-11 and I mm-hmm. said you know if we had had the Twitter and everything that we have now then I think we would have all been shell-shocked three or four times worse. Probably, yeah. Because the constant feed would have done a a lot of damage to us at that point in time. It was almost better not knowing. (laughs) (laughs) That it kept you a little more sane, that you could separate yourself from it a little bit. Because I remember, remember people acting crazy. And I wonder in some ways, you know, it would have been bad and potentially more people would have died quicker, but at the same time, in some ways, ignorance would have been bliss, you know, that you probably mm-hmm. wouldn't be as informed about everything that's going on. Yeah. And from a health and safety perspective, that probably would not be a good thing. Uh-huh. But from uh, ability to just get through your day and get things done without having an anxiety attack or, or uh, worrying about things, you probably would have been better off. That's true. Yeah. Absolutely true. I mean, we talk uh, in uh, in various uh, communities I've been in about, you know, taking care of your mental health by disconnecting from social media for a day or a week or even a month. And, and people pretty consistently report feeling better and having a better outlook on, on life because we, it's so easy to focus on the negative information coming into us. Uh, and, and to disregard all the positive, um, because, you know, the negative is a trigger to defend ourselves. The positive is just, oh, it's positive. That's great. (laughs) So, so yeah, there's some, definitely some psychology there. I think you're absolutely right. It would have been a very different experience. I think our saving grace as a generation, as Gen Xers, is our, uh, our ability to use our pop culture as our escapism a lot of times mm-hmm. whereas whether or not you are a person of faith at this point in time in our generation uh i think a lot of people probably use their uh fantasy worlds i always feel like saying something as a fantasy world is such a trite way to describe something mm-hmm. but uh I, their escapist uh hobbies whatever it may be, I think mm-hmm. it provides a lot of uh, comfort for people at different yes. points in time. So we can, we can yeah. focus on those things because it's very difficult to unplug, you know, and having, you know, having a book you can fall into or a piece of music or a hobby mm-hmm. or something that, that gives you that, 
that's soulless at any point in time, it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't need to have our minds focused on bad things or tough things. I'm a very attention deficit disorder person. I'm definitely <laughs> people who, you know, if I'm driving somewhere and I'm thinking about a client's problem, it's mm -hmm. very easy for me to miss a turn. Yeah. And I'm, for, I can, I can relate to that. <laughs> my family will fuss at me immediately in the car, you know, oh. yeah, and I'll explain, I'll be like, it's just how my mind works, you know, like yeah. that, that's the function of being attention deficit disorder is you really don't need distractions or it's, it's too much oh. like when somebody is on medication and they're grabbing the dust motes in the air, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's too much. It's too much for that, but you know, having things where we can, you know, get ourselves back to a, a place where there's nothing better in the world than to turn on the tape deck in your boombox and and listen to the first or second side of songs from the big chair one more time, mm -hmm. or or try to explain to somebody from Gen Z what a B side is. Oh yeah. <laughs> and that's that's like going back to the 45s like b-sides were like the 50s and 60s you know yeah that's what i'm saying it's like even then if an album like now you'll have an artist who will record a single and they'll release the single before you know the album comes out just as a yeah. tester but mm -hmm. back then it's like you couldn't just release the single you had an a-side and a b-side of a disc or a cassette right or a cassette. absolutely mm -hmm. And it would be a release that way. And what was funny is a lot of artists would put the good song on the A side. And then sometimes they would slap something together for the B side. Yeah, yeah. You know, assuming no one was ever going to listen to it. <laughs> the and most there, I remember B sides becoming a, a thing, you know, well, like people would do playlists of B sides. <laughs> There's a few uh, B-sides that transcended the A-side, like, and mm. that are comically so, where, like, the biggest B-side of all time mm -hmm. is na-na-na-na, hey-hey-hey, goodbye-bye. <laughs> I never realized that was a B-side. Yeah, awesome. well, what happened was they had a serious song that they recorded. Yeah. And radio DJs accidentally were playing the other side of the record when it was released. And oh. <laughs> for the other side of the record, one of them had worked out a hook, which was the whole na-na-na-na, hey-hey-hey, goodbye thing. Uh -huh. So, so the, the thing that's funny about it is these are seasoned studio, studio musicians. And they were like, okay, no one's going to listen to it. So for a joke, let's all play our instruments as badly as possible. <laughs> and let's all sing off key and sing as badly as possible when we record this. Oh. <laughs> no one's going to listen to it. And so these guys, these professionals shouting that now gets played at what? Every basketball game for the rest of the time? <laughs> eternity. Yes, it's true. <laughs> it's true. Oh so. my goodness. Music and sports has its own relationship. That is really That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, I have to mention one more topic before we, uh, you know, I, before we go off on any more tangents. One more topic, parental advisories. We were the first generation to see official parental advisories, like, placed onto albums. Um, so a parent who, you know, because this was a generation where parents were usually with the child 
if they were buying the album at the record store so the parent could check the album and see there's a parental advisory on this do i actually want to get this for my child so so there was the rise in the parental advisory and i remember the beastie boys license to ill was the first album i had with a parental advisory on it why i had to have a bootleg copy made for myself in middle school <laughs> yeah <laughs> that point in time for sure I remember a big person about that in politics. I think it was Al Gore's wife, who early on was one of the big people who was a leading um, person for, for that. And yeah. I think Eminem like criticized her in one of his songs for that very reason. Mm-hmm. If I remember correctly, dear listener. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's gosh, you know, my DJ perspective, which is really funny about those kind of things, when, it, when I was doing professional DJ work more and you would have these companies that would release like these uh, sets of music for the DJs that we would push into our rotation. Mm-hmm. And certain songs, since they knew we were going to be playing them in schools, mm-hmm. they would release quote unquote clean versions. So right. when you do the library, you'll have explicit version of the song and you'll have the clean version of the song. And most of the time, that's where it stops, you know? Mm-hmm. Except for this one Gwen Stefani song Uh-oh. that came out in the early 2000s. You know, uh, oh, what is it? The one with a whole like, you know, this is, is bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A. Uh-huh. It's Hollaback Girl. Hollaback Girl. Thank you. Hollaback Girl. Yeah. Hollaback Girl. Okay. So the thing about Hollaback Girl, they released the clean version. We played it mm-hmm. at dances. All these people uh, complained about the song. Mm. And- DJ Service then released the super clean version. And so we all got the super clean version in our library. And, and then there was still complaints about it. So they then released the super, super duper clean version. Oh my God. <laughs> and somehow still managed to get complaints about the song. So now I actually have a super duper squeaky clean version is what it's called. Of Hollaback Girl. Which is not that bad of a song in the great scheme of things, but parents <laughs> locked onto it. They locked onto it and they made it this big deal. So I think even before the song was getting played, they were complaining, complaining. And we were going out of our way as DJs to like, because there's a lot of songs where, you know, like you look painfully for these edited versions of, mm. of it. And then you'll have things that just, completely like roll under the the radar that have had things that have been on radio for years and people yeah. don't really I think there's a stone song I'm trying to remember that famously has something that's super inappropriate in the song and it's mm-hmm. been on radio play for years and no one's ever said a word about it yeah well I remember uh being younger and you know some of what would be considered mild cursing today you know things that would just be on tv you know uh, and maybe there might be a tv uh 13 warning on it or something that the average pg-13 movie is going to have in it whatever um would be completely edited out back in the 80s how desensitized our generation has become has come yeah I remember seeing the South Park movie in, in theaters and looking around while it was going on, thinking, like, 
like that people were going to see me like I was in a porno theater or something <laughs> like that. You know, because for the time, it was so above, you oh, know. Oh, yes. But now you look at it by current standards and you're like, yeah, all right. You know, um, <laughs> I I was a middle school teacher when South Park was really, you know, at its uh, original peak of popularity when it was just coming out. And uh, I had middle school students who would wear, you know, shirts with South Park figures or would be quoting South Park. And I'm like, okay, that's really nice. Uh, I don't know what to do about this. <laughs> yeah. You're talking about the things that are being edited like that, even the, the films or the movies. You know, I, I recognized it more in cinema than I would have had in music. So I remember mm. like the channels that would show movies like USA used to have USA Up All Dark, Up All Night. Yes. And they would show older films from that time frame. And you would have whole chunks of the story cut out where you're trying to figure out what just happened in the movie. Mm -hmm. It would flash because it was definitely something that would have never <laughs> played on network television. Yeah. Especially, USA Up All Night. <laughs> yeah. Especially when they were would show like some movie that was obviously like a a Porky's or an Animal House type of yeah. movie. Yeah. like huge sections where you're like, that was probably at least seven minutes of something inappropriate that got cut. <laughs> Have to wait till we're grown up to see it. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, my God. I, I didn't see movies like that until I was kind of in college and older because that just was not accessible to me. Yeah, I mean, but even then, a lot of those movies that we missed out on weren't that good. I mean, they weren't the 80s, that good. In the 80s, you could have a movie that the villain was a guy in a black Trans Am with the windows, like, you know, like, <laughs> a window. or a guy wearing leather on a motorcycle was the, was the villain, you know, and that's, right. that's it. That's the whole two-hour movie, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's the whole thing, yeah, but anywho. Well, I think, uh, was there any uh, topics, anything else that we didn't touch on that you wanted to, to cover? I know we could probably cover like so much more when it comes to music and well, how we, we consumed it. Broad strokes on this one. Yeah. I um, mean, this is one where there's plenty of stuff you could probably take out. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, it's so much different now. And, you know, I... Uh, do I consider these folks lucky? I don't know. Do I consider a younger generation lucky because they didn't have the challenges we had in finding the music they wanted to consume? I don't know. I would say it's probably luckier that they just have a broader exposure than we did. They have a broader exposure, but they're invited to be in more subdivided units and groups than we were yeah, like now like you can identify into something so much smaller because you can find people who are exactly like you so much easier online mm -hmm. in terms of that's true like and while that's a positive in some ways because you find people who identify with you it's also a negative because it doesn't force you to understand the person who is not you yeah you know which I think helps people become more polarized than they probably should be, mm -hmm. you know, in a lot of ways, because you're always, you always, you always find value in the friends who don't have all the same opinions you have, you know, right, right. That, that do feel differently about things because their experience is different and, you know, and that's valuable. And I don't think that's always appreciated as valuable as much now. Mm -hmm. as 
as it probably has been in the past. And I'm doing everything I can not to say in my day. <laughs> you know? Well, I will say that because we can find each other that way and we can find commonalities that way, I think there's less generation gap between what each generation likes. That's true. Um, uh, because, you know, I thought I was going to be like my folks. And when all my favorite stuff from childhood went on the quote oldies station, <laughs> that I would just be listening to the oldies station. But no, I, I still love new stuff that continues to come out. So I, I think the fact that, um, that it's cross-generational, you know, music is, is so cross-generational now that, uh, that we're not stuck in those little groups or, or in those um, age groups necessarily. Well, let except, me give you a except maybe the things that were created on vines. I, you know, fine. Let me give you a nice <laughs> anecdote then to, to put a button on that and uh -huh. end it with, I love IHOP, the international pancakes. Mm. Yep. So does my youngest daughter, Janice. We, uh, my, my wife and my oldest daughter can, can take it or leave it, but we love it. We would be so happy if an IHOP was open in front of our neighborhood. Oh yeah. Would love it. Yeah. Because the menu is such a great menu and it's the price point is a very nice price point for a family, all those things, you know, and, uh, you know, when you want a good omelet, there you go, you know, mm -hmm. you want all these other things, there you go. So, you know, we were in there together. Mm. one evening having dinner because everybody else was at work and I looked at her and I was listening to the music and they were playing some Dire Straits song in the background and I mm. said you know this is great this is just great they're playing all of this great 80s and early 90s music <laughs> this is so fantastic you know when I was your age and I would go to IHOP with my mom and dad all they were playing was 50s and 60s. Oh, wait, I get it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I, have to, I have to throw one more story in. Um, so my mom was a big fan of uh, the monkeys in the 60s. She, yeah, she, yeah. she liked the monkeys. When those episodes started getting replayed on cable. Oh, yeah, MTV. I, yeah, I, I became a fan. And that was only 20 years only 20 years since they had started that i was listening to them and becoming a fan and i say only 20 years because when i look at it now you know this was my mom's music and then me starting to like my mom's music another 20 years later i'm still listening to everything that i <laughs> I listened to in the eighties and, and I don't consider that oldies at all. <laughs> well, there's a nostalgia cycle too, depending on when you catch it, because the way I've had it explained to me on a marketing level mm -hmm. is when you're between the ages of about 38 and 47, you are mm -hmm. at peak consumer. Really? All right. Well, and I, I got one more year. <laughs> all pop culture is directed at you. Really? From a nostalgia perspective, because you have the disposable income to spend on it. That makes sense. So the children who are around at that 
they get exposed to that nostalgia so that they can kind of enjoy. Like my daughter loves Stranger Things. Zane mm-hmm. didn't make back it, even though it is our nostalgia. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's exactly. so there's that that duplicate of that going on. And when we were that age, there were things that were very much like Happy Days was on TV that was aimed at our yeah. parents' generation. You know, but it was done in a modern perspective for the current audience at that time. That's true. And, that's true. Yeah. You know, so. So all those kids who are, you know, who who were behind us, you know, their their stuff is coming through next. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm sure they'll love it <laughs> the same way, you know. I just I hearing people now that were born in the '80s and '90s talking about '90s music being old, and me thinking that was the music that was coming out at the beginning of my adulthood <laughs> that was that was my college music <laughs> it's exactly. just yeah re- reality check reality check for sure well because in our heads we always think we're we're still like 25 even though we know we are true it's true i i still you know joke every once in a while well when i grow up i'm going to <laughs> i turn 47 next week so <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to this Throwbacks episode of Gen X Replays After the Show podcast. To follow Frankie between shows, look for him at Dance Frankie H on Twitter, as Frankie Hagen on Facebook, and at his dance instructor or real estate website, dancefrankie.com and frankiehagen.com. To follow me between shows, look for at Stephanie Does VO on Twitter and Instagram, and Jacory on YouTube and Twitch. I'll put this info and lots of other fun links in the description for this episode. Subscribe here so you don't miss our next Throwbacks episode and our other after-the-show discussions. And help us boost the signal on this podcast by sharing it with friends. Currently, we host at Anchor.fm and aggregate to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Until next episode, be safe out there.